The following sermon audio is from Parkwood Kings Mountain in Kings Mountain, North Carolina. For more information, go to parkwoodkm.org. Good morning. morning. Welcome to Parkwood this morning. Changed it up on you a little bit this morning. I just want to make you aware of it, make sure you're prepared because we've got a lot of ground to cover. You ought to have two things in your hand. One is just an info guide. This is just information. The other is a sermon notes. You should have back and front on that. And uh, so I hope you're, you're locked and loaded and got your Bibles open to, to Genesis 2. We're going to begin in verse 4 today. As we've been looking at the gospel in Genesis, and I, I hope you have been saturated with the gospel this morning through our worship. That is our desire Not that we be exhausted this morning. There's so much in this passage, it's almost as a pastor to feel like you're starting only to fail to be able to completely exhaust this passage. But what I want us to get today is just foundational. We're looking at the gospel in Genesis and we're wanting to lay the proper foundation. So stand with me in honor of God's word as we begin in Genesis 2. We will begin reading in verse 4 and read down to verse 24. In God's Word we read, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no, one, no, there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of the land is good. Bedlam and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds 
of heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took, out, he took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So Lord, as we read this passage, we are overwhelmed again as we have been by your sovereignty by your omnipotent power that spoke all things into being. And now we see something special, something personal. So Lord, I pray for us today that we would not make this passage about us this passage is about you. It's your work. You finished your work. This is your rest. We have entered into your finished rest. And this morning, we see this is your garden. We are yours, Lord. Open our eyes so that we could see the wonder of this story, our story. Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So if you look at Genesis 2 and look at verse 4, I know you, we are used to thinking through chapters because that's what the way our Bibles are laid out. That's not the way it was written initially. Verse 4 starts a new section. We see that if you look at verse 4 because it says these are the generations. That's sort of your little clue that the author is starting something new here. A new section he wants to focus on, and this is... Think about it. Chapter 2 is so critical because chapter 3 makes no sense without chapter 2. You would have this creation and then you would have a fall. What, what happened? And this goes to some of the questions that the original audience would be asking. So make no mistake, this is not another account of another creation. This is a detailed account of the creation. And this author wants us to understand what this looked like. He wanted us to understand both of man's place in nature and place in his story. So the narrator is trying to help the original audience because just think of it. You see this amazing creation being created and God saying it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good and getting to the end of it saying it's very good. He's finished it and he's entered into his rest and now he brings us into this rest and yet what would the people who were originally reading this book be experiencing they would probably be experiencing something other than something that was very good <laughs> what they were experiencing whether it's slavery in egypt they were either coming out of slavery or they were headed to slavery they would not have been experiencing something that was very good so what happened so chapter 2 and 3 
tells us what happened. And to understand and appreciate the wonder of what we just got through singing. We must understand what we had and what was lost. So we want to look at this, but at the same time, don't miss God in this because we have been laying out this sovereign, transcendent God who spoke everything into being with His Word from nothing. And now, the author does something completely different. Look at, look at verse 4. Verse 4. If you would look back in chapters one, you would see, and God said, and God said, and God said. This is the generic word for God. It's Elohim. And all of a sudden now, look in verse 4. It says, These are the generations of heaven and earth that were created in the day the Lord God made the heaven. You see, there's something different. You've got the word Lord here. This is Jehovah. This is Yahweh. The author's doing something here. And the original audience would have got it immediately. This is, the, this is the covenant God. This is Yahweh. This is a personal God. And so he's painting these two things that we must never lose sight of as Christians. God is transcendent, and yet He is imminent. We're going to see a picture of an, the intimacy of God with His creation. Those who bear His image. So God is sovereign, yet He is personal and we see it in the good news that God created man verse 7 says then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living creature this word in verse 7 formed is the word of a potter fashioning his masterpiece fashioning this his artifact he's fashioning with his hands this is the picture that he's painting for us and remember Remember that in the garden, in the beginning, we wasn't designed to be separated from body and spirit. This was the result of the fall. So this is a big deal. And so remember, your physical body isn't something that is nothing. It is something that has been fashioned by God. It has value because of who made it. And God's not done with your body. One day... He's going to resurrect your body into a glorified state like that of Christ's glorified body. And we will enter into the new heavens, into new earth, joined together body and spirit. So He created man, formed him, and He formed him from dust, dirt. What's the significance of that? We're earthly. Genesis 3.19, after the fall, when he's talking to him, says, By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So we were created from dust, from dirt. 1 Corinthians 15.47. I want to hold your place there if you turn there. We're going to come back to there in just a second. It says, The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Speaking of Christ, the first man is from the ground. He's earthly. The second man is from God. He's from heaven. So we are earthly, but we are not animals. We are earthly, but we are not little gods. So what makes us distinct? Here we read, 
that the sovereign creator breathed into man. He breathed into us. So all life is a gift, a gift from God. But here we have something personal. We have this person-to-person contact. This is what the author don't want us to miss this morning. He didn't have to do it this way. But we have this picture of a sovereign God that stoops down and forms man and then leans into him in a face-to-face encounter and breathes into him life. Into his very nostrils, this picture of personal, of a warm, intimate, even a kiss. So we see from the very beginning, this person that would say, Lord God, was designed to have fellowship with God. This is personal. We catch something here, I hope, of what it means to be made in the Imago Dei, the image of God, that God not only forms us personally, but breathes into us life. And then man becomes a living being, physically and spiritually. So this should be foundationally obvious Since He did, we are utterly dependent upon Him. Physically and spiritually. So hear me today, we can no more make ourselves alive spiritually than Adam could have made himself alive physically. God had to do something. He had to breathe into him the breath of life. Every one of us must have a but God moment or we are be dead in our trespasses and sins. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, lays this out clearly for us. It says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, speaking of Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust and is the man of heaven. So also are those who are of heaven. So listen, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We bear Christ's image because He makes us alive in Him. He makes us one with Him and we are His. This is a picture of what God is doing, but God's not done. He intimately formed us. He breathed into Adam the breath of life. And now we see the good news of God's garden. So I want you to just see just four realities, and there's more, of God's provision for Adam. Through a place called Eden. So first, Eden was a place... (laughs) Eden is not a metaphor. Eden Eden was a real place. If you don't believe it, and I just dread having to read verses 10 to 14 because I know I'm killing all these amazing, these words in here. You know, Pishon and Havilah and Gihon and all these places. In other words, what's the author's point? This is an actual place. This is a geographical location. But though it is a real place, it foreshadows and points to another real place. We hear it said, paradise lost and paradise found. Paradise reborn in the new heaven and the new earth. Understanding Eden helps us understand something of what it's going to be like 
when we are in heaven. So Eden was a real place, and Eden was a prepared place. Listen, look at this. It's amazing. He didn't have to do it this way. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So as it were, think about this. The sovereign creator that made the sun and then said, okay, sun, light, it's your job. It's God what God did. This sovereign God sets up housekeeping, as it were, for Adam and Eve. He plants them a garden. <laughs> and it was a personally planted garden that God planted, and it was a delightful place. It was a place for His people. And it was a prepared place. This should run true of us in John 14 too, where Jesus, speaking to His disciples, said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to a pair... Did I not tell you that I go to a prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. So will you sin a little bit of the beauty of Eden? Eden wasn't just a delightful place because of all it had to eat. Eden was a place of life. It was a place of life. Verse 9 says, And out of the ground the Lord God made, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant for the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so we see here identified two trees. These are an important trees. We'll see the tree of life come back in the next week. So let's think about for a minute the tree of life. Psalms 36, verse 8 and 9 says, The feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. The tree of life was a tree. But in the Bible, everywhere we see the tree of life, we see that it conveys the thought of abundance of life that comes from God's life-sustaining grace for His people. This was a tree that they were welcome to eat and encouraged to eat like any of the other trees. And think about this picture of the garden. It's abundant supply. From it, the rivers flowed out. This temple-like garden. All the rivers flowed out from this place to the corners, to four corners of the earth. This was the center. So Revelations 22, I think it's, if I've got it in your notes, I believe I might have it wrong. It's 22, verse 1. Verses 1 to 5. Then the angels showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flow, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any 
accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will be no need of light or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. In other words, the garden was a place of life because it was in a place of eternal life. Eternal life and fellowship between God and man. This was Eden. This is what was lost. Eden was God's garden. Don't forget that. The Lord took the man and put him in his garden to work and to keep it. So Eden was an active place. It was an active place. God creating man with an intrinsic responsibility. He created us to work. Not only did He create us to work, He created our creation for us to work in it. If you look back at verse 5, it says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. So God made us. You're starting to see something of what it means to be a man. God created us to work. He created us with a responsibility. And so He tells man in verse 15, He takes him, so He forms man outside the garden. He brings man, He prepares the garden, He brings man into His finished work, but He brings it into that to work and to keep it. And so, the garden was not a lazy place. It wasn't a dead place. It wasn't a place for inactivity. It was a living, active work. Ephesians 2 says, though we were dead, we are made alive. And that God has planned for us good works before the foundation of the world that we should walk in them. He works precisely because He's in the garden. So work is part of God's provision for your life. Work is a gift. Work is not punishment. It's part of God's provision. He gives it to us. And with God's provision comes His prohibition. Verse 16 and verse 17, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so we go back to the two trees. The tree of life is not prohibited, it's encouraged. As with every other tree that God planted for their good, for their delight for their joy. But the tree of knowledge and good and evil, prohibited. Why? What does it mean? This is foundationally important this morning. Right here. It's that moment where, you know, we say, hey, you're not going to gain anything else. Lean in on this. You see, Adam and Eve were to see themselves as children totally dependent on their Creator God for wisdom and understanding. Not themselves. He created them that way. He created them to understand that He is the only all-wise God. And they are not. So they should trust Him. You see, the tree represented the ability to be morally autonomous. And by refusing the right to eat this tree... 
God was indicated that He alone is autonomous. This is foundationally important that human beings are to live dependently on God and not independently without Him. He is the lawgiver. All moral choices, all of them, are made in reference to God. This is how He created it to be. So by not taking, this is, listen, by not taking the fruit, the couple would be expressing their faith in God and His right to order their life. This was the garden. And listen, this is heaven. This is not only then. This is what God is restoring in the hearts of rebellious men and women. So he said moral autonomy equals death. Because with it you will become responsible. So I ask us the question, do I glorify what God says lead to death? Am I glorifying that? Because God says it, it'll kill you. And it did. Think about it. Luke 9, 23 and 24. Talking to His disciples. He said, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake will save it. Is Christ not saying that when Christ saves a man, we surrender to Him and He has the right to order our life. And we gladly joy in that. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means that Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 is the drumbeat of our life when it says, Trust in the Lord with all your, with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear God and turn away from evil. It will be healing for your flesh and refreshment to your bones. In other words, trusting and depending and letting God order your life is what brings rest. It's letting Him order it. Ordering your own life brings death. This is the simple truth that He told Adam. So God's provision of the garden was amazing. God's prohibition was clear. And then we see the good news that God created woman. You see, up to this point, man was still alone. And in verse 18, we see God saying, And then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Remember we said last week, when he says it's good, he's saying more than that, that looks good. He's saying that what I created is working according to my purpose. And so here he says, with man, alone, it's not working according to my purpose. I'm not done. And oh, how Adam was glad to hear that. You see, but don't miss the point. Human beings were created first to have fellowship with God, but they are also meant to have fellowship with other humans. We are created in the image of God for community. The devil seeks to isolate you and to kill you. That's his motive. He's been doing it since the beginning. And God created us for community, not a secluded life. He didn't create us for that. God is a unity in community. And He creates us to live in community. 
This quote is on your screen. Those who claim to be Christians but desire their own company and want to worship in solitude betray a warped view of themselves and a disregard for God's will. The local church is to be a family where the married and the single find true friendship and fellowship in the gospel. God loves us, and, he, and so He tells Adam, it's not good, I'm going to create you something. This, this phrase, it is not good, is the framework, the foundational framework that sets the pace for marriage, family, and the church. We are people created for each other to live in community with each other, and Adam's work revealed it. <laughs> so God knew it. It didn't take long for Adam to figure it out. So we say verse 19 and 20. It says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. That's a lot of work. Listen, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So don't miss this nugget in here. We see something more of a little bit of what it means to be a man. God ordained this. He ordained him to name the animals. And for culturally, if you were a Jewish person, this would have really meant something. Because naming meant both authority and headship. We, the man named the children. That was part of that authority. And so when God told him to name the animals, that showed Adam's authority. But not only that, it showed knowledge. Think about that. If you name something, you have to have some knowledge of that which you are naming. Some people call Adam the first biologist and the first botanist because that which he had named, he had, God had to give him that knowledge of that. Here's what he discovered. Animals are no substitute for humans. That's what Adam found out. And hey, listen. I've got three dogs. I love my dogs. I'm not much of a cat person. If you like cats, it's okay. God loves you anyway. He created them for our joy. But listen, they do not bear God's image. And they are no substitute for human interaction. There is a radical difference between human and animals, and there's a fundamental similarity between man and woman. God created it that way. And so the end of verse 20 we see, but for Adam, there's not a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took out one of his ribs and closed it up in its flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken out, he made into a woman and brought her to him. So we get this, this, this word, a helper fit. A helper fit for him. You could even say a helper suitable. Even a better word if, you translate, if your translation has that. Here's the danger. I hope you picked up on it last week. There's a fundamental danger for us to read something in the Bible, and I know none of us go to Webster's Dictionary anymore and open it up. I don't, we just go to Google and Google it. It, it. Either way, dangerous to say, okay, what does it mean to rest in God last week? Let's just read the dictionary. If you want to know what rest means for you, I hope we learned last week you've got to go to God. What does it mean for him to rest? That's what it means for me to rest. And to understand then what it means to help her, if you go to the dictionary, here's what you're going to hear. An unskilled person helping a skilled person. He's your gopher, right? Is that what it means? 
This is the fundamental problem when we begin to look for something outside of God to define what God says. God does not say that suitable means it corresponds to Him. It complements Him. These are our words. Adam and Eve, man and woman, are made to correspond with each other and to complement each other. Isn't that foundationally important today? It's, it's almost common sense, but we need to say it, and we need to keep saying it. This is simply the way God designed it to work. What He lacked, she supplied. What she lacked, He supplied. They were made suitable for each other. They were... They provided mutual support, not inferior, not second rate. This does travesty to God's character. Man was created in such a way that he needed help. Some even say, Amen. You know, we need help. This was wasn't this what Adam found out. Nain did all this. Not, ain't not, none of that's working. I need help. God already knew it. So Eve was giving fully access to God because she had fully access to Eden. And she was also fully responsible for her actions. Listen to this quote. I believe it's on the screen. The woman does not occupy an inferior position in the marriage relationship, but listen, she fully assists her husband in fulfilling the divine mandate. And that's no small purpose. God gives us a divine mandate and He gives us a completer to help us accomplish it. And so we, when we set our deacons up there, that's what we said. You're not going to be able to serve God's church without your wife because she completes you. So man was made aware he was incomplete <laughs> and he was brought to woman. And then... I think, I think in the message translation it says, hot dog. No, I didn't really say that. But she was, he was excited. This was, <laughs> he was like singing. I mean, this is good. He said, this at last was bone of my bone. This, what is he saying? She's made for me. She compliments me. She corresponds with me. Wasn't it obvious? It was to Adam. So Adam meets his completer. And then he receives the good news of God's institution of marriage. God's institution. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. Just four obvious realities to God's institution we call marriage. First, Look at verse 24. Marriage is a loving commitment. Notice this. Brothers, notice this. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. He shall leave him. In other words, they're not supposed to be taking care of you anymore. Act like a man. If you're ready to get married... You're ready to take care of your responsibilities and what that means. It means the buck stops on you. This is a commitment. This word means that he leaves his father and mother that as, as the primary person who takes care of him. He becomes the primary caretaker and he is glued to his wife. 
That's what he means. Hold fast. They're glued together. And this is a covenant. It's a covenant. And it's a covenant that's so important because it reflects a greater covenant. The new covenant. The covenant that God would secure in his blood. So marriage is a loving commitment, but it's also for companionship. Look at this. They are made one flesh. And before we go immediately to say, oh, that's just talking about sex. We need to understand this. There's nothing nasty or ooey about sex in the Bible. We ought to be able to talk about it. But listen, until we understand what it means to be one, we will never understand the glory that marriage is for companionship. They are one with and equal to us. This is the picture of the Trinity. That the Trinity is one in mind. One in purpose. Their very motivations are the same. They don't have to have weekly meetings to get their self lined up. They don't have to sync their calendars. <laughs> they're, they're one. So this companionship, this covenant, this commitment is that for us, when we become one with that person, then our life is bound up, it is bound up in the fact that we live for the, for the good of that person, for the embetterment of them, for their delight, not for ours. That's, that's what they do. This is companionship. This is oneness. And I have never seen this demonstrated greater and if you've ever had the privilege of watching someone who's been married 50, 60 years stand at the bedside of their spouse as they go to be with Christ, and that person stays with them to the end because they are one with them. That's what makes it so hard when you lose them. They're one flesh there to the end. I'm going to be there until that person goes to be with Christ glorified in the oneness of what that means. John, just think about this. Though the Trinity is perfectly one and did not need anything, yet they created man and revealed himself to us so that we could have a relationship with him. And so Christ in John 17 in verse 20 says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you are. Father, as you are, Father, in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It was the Lord's prayer that we be one with Christ. This is what marriage portrays. Marriage is also to be a permanent union. A permanent union. Mark 10.9 says, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In other words, marriage is a God-sealed bond. God seals it. In other words, this commitment in this relationship reflects something eternal. It reflects what God has done. It reflects who God is. This is why this covenant is important. This is why it's permanent. What we say is God doesn't forsake us and I will not forsake you. 
This is what marriage is to display. Marriage is also to be monogamous and heterosexual. Marriage reflects a created unity and diversity. Man and woman are not the same by design, but they are designed to complement and correspond to each other. It is ordained to be a pure reflection of himself. That's why it's important to understand what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman because we reflect God's image in our femininity and in our masculinity. God takes the man and woman created in His image and He makes them one to to reflect something of Himself. So God says, I am faithful, you be faithful. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let the marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. To step out on your marriage covenant is primarily a sin against God. God says, you reflect me, and I am always faithful. So I am faithful, you be faithful. God designed man and woman to complement each other, to correspond with each other, and in so doing, reflect God's unity. In other words, it is only through heterosexual marriage that God is glorified because that is what He ordained. In other words, God gave them something to do And he said, you can't even accomplish it without each other. You can't accomplish your multiplying and fill the earth without your completer. And here's what Adam found out. I can't function in my subduing without him either. God makes us incomplete. Both man and woman. Listen, so both man and woman uniquely display God's character. And without the woman, we cannot understand this personal, nurturing, intimate God. Can we? It is through their understanding, it is through bringing marriage together that we understand both the ruling, but also the nurturing And all that that means. And so, listen to this quote. A man and woman are never more like God than on their wedding day when they commit themselves unconditionally to one another. Christ the model will go even further and die for each other. In marriage, we imitate the gospel, giving up our rights and even our life for the other. So let's go back in closing to these two trees. So to enjoy the tree of life is for us to display our dependency, our trust, our delight in our God. And by not taking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve was displaying that they desired God to have the right to rule their life, to order their life. So this is my question for for me (laughs) My so what question. Am I delighting in God's ordering my life? Let's skip over Deuteronomy for the sake of time. Turn with me to Ephesians 5.22. Because we know this to be true inside ourselves. Either we are resting that God absolutely knows what's good for us or we don't. 
that God knows what life is for. He knows what, how life is supposed to be lived. So how do I know? How does Stephen know that I'm delighting in God's ordering of my life? Why don't we listen to, in, in the Greek, we, they call it the oikos. It's your, it's your sphere of community that lives around you. Your community. So let's just think about your community, my community. Let's think about our marriage. Let's think about our friends. Let's think about our church family. And ask myself, am I delighting in them? Am I laboring for their good? Or am I simply using them to get what I want? Does my marriage or my singleness reflect the gospel? Look at Ephesians 5 and verse 22. And just ask ourselves these questions. Just let God's Word inform you. It says in verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to, to their husbands. So Wives, how do you know you're delighting in God's ordering of your life? Does this describe your marriage? Single ladies, do you long for a man to love you and to respect you? To care for you, to labor for the good of you? Then are you neglecting Christ's bride? Christ has given us His church. And He tells us, love my church. So do you love God's church the way you desire to be loved? This is how we know we're delighting in God's ordering of our life because He has told us how we should live. Then we read on the husbands this weight. Man, you should feel a weight. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, and having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy, that she might be holy and blameless without blemish. So, husbands, how do you know you're delighting in God's ordering of your life? Do you desire your wife to be holy? I'm not just asking you if you'd beat some dude up if he messed with her. I'm saying, are you concerned about her spiritual care as her physical safety? Because God said that's how we know we are delighting in the ordering of our life because he has given that to us. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does to church. Look at that word, nourish and cherish. What that means is our gardening illustration that love in its purest form is to provide nutrients for growth and protect it as it grows. Men, that's what God has called us to do. And so we do. 
in our marriages, so we do in His church. So we do with our friends. So we, we end our time together saying this. If you were married, I've asked myself my whole, as I thought about these just concentric rings this morning, I said, am I delighting my wife? Am I delighting in my children? Am I delighting in my church? And if you have to say on one of them, no, then God's grace is sufficient for us to say, repent of your sins and ask God to make them the delight of your life. Lord, as we read your word and all the different things that's going on in this garden and in your creation. And Lord, we can feel the beauty of Eden and yet the fall is right around the corner. We feel it. Lord, we live the effects of the fall every day of our life. And we get a glimpse of what is to come in this place called Eden as we long for a place we will never sin anymore. A place that we will have eternal fellowship with the living God. Lord, we say with Hebrews that no matter whether we are married or single, that let us uphold marriage because it is a picture of your gospel. A gospel that chose us in the midst of our sin. is in that beautiful story of Hosea. It goes to a prostitute. And makes her his own. This is the gospel. That Christ redeemed us. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your redemption that you have made us your own and you will never leave us or forsake us and that now you take great delight in your children. So Lord, help us to reflect this in our actual life. That as we are delighted in, so we delight in those you've given to us. And so Lord, we just thank you we thank you for the ones that sit beside of us now. We thank you that we can look back ten years and see what you've done in our life. That we can see the mercy that you've given us. The wives and the husbands that you give us or that we had. Some of which now live with you. So Lord, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that's painted here for us in Genesis. So Lord, now, as we move to a time of worship, let us stand and proclaim the only name whereby men may be saved, our Lord and Savior. And we pray it in His name. Amen.